0: We are in Judges chapter 9, verses 22 through 57. And the title of today's sermon is The Fire of Judgment. The Fire of Judgment. And we see in this chapter that we've been covering, chapter 9 of the book of Judges, one of the book's main themes is very very prevalent here. And that's the theme of conflict. Now very early, as you're undoubtedly Aware, and you've noticed in the biblical account, we are confronted with conflict very early on. There's a conflict of authority that we see in Genesis 3 in the garden as the rebellion takes place and the fall occurs. The serpent beguiles Eve into rejecting God's authority. Subsequently, the serpent's words, the serpent's words, are made authoritative to Eve in Eve's understanding of what's going on. These words entice her into a belief of human autonomy. That is, the idea that human authority overrides all else, including God's authority. Then Adam follows along the path that his wife sets out on effectively making her decision authoritative for him. So this conflict of authority after the fall very quickly leads to physical conflict. In the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, we see the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, that's Cain, who murders his younger brother, Abel. But then conflict Escalates as sin flourishes as, as mankind spreads and increases. And by Genesis chapter 14, less than a third of the way, through this book of beginnings, we see war. War breaks out, and in fact, it's the first world war. It's the war of nine kings, the five kings of the South against the four kings of the north. conflict, such a part of the fallen human experience. And one of the greatest examples, or excuse me, examinations of human conflict was written a long, long time ago by this Greek fellow by the name of Thucydides. And he wrote this history called The, called the History of the Peloponnesian War. Now there's, there, this, this book, his history, his examination confirms what the Bible tells us. And we find this in history and even in contemporary current events. There's a confirmation. God tells us what is and how things are, and then we see it. You know, and through this, by examining these things, and the reason I do this is to show you how God's word is applicable to us in today's world. If we think of these ancient, ancient people at the time of the judges, and this ancient king who seized power, Avimelech, we must consider, is this just a, a story to us, an interesting account, or does it actually make sense? And there's a bit of a danger. If I, if I, if I relate things directly to things going on today, then we get caught up in you know, political factionism, And and I don't want to do that. So this is why I draw on history. Because I want you to look at the Bible, and I want you to look at history and see how they match. And then I want you to think about what your life is today, what's going on around you, and how these things apply to you. So if we see something in the Bible that happens thousands of years prior to this guy named Thucydides who took part in this war, the Peloponnesian War, in the 5th century B.C., which was a war that wrecked Greece. It lasted 27 years. It was between Sparta and Athens, and it destroyed Greece for generations. So he looks at this war, and he looks at human conflict, and he's trying to figure it out. Why do human beings do this? And he comes up with three motivations for war, fear, number one; honor, number two, which is really pride, and number three, interest. There's you, you know the people. Someone's getting something out of this. Unless we think that there are noble causes to war, which some people claim. Now, when I speak of war, I'm speaking of the initiation of war. I'm not speaking. In defense, when, when we act in defense of an attack, I'm talking about war as initiated. But those who, according to Thucydides, those who say, who cry justice and enter into war, he says that's a sham. It, that cry for justice just, just disguises calculating self Interest. And I think that's an important thing for us to consider in our day and age. Think of all these motivations this Greek guy in the fifth century BC talked about. They're all based in sin, aren't they? Now, obviously, Thucydides wasn't a Christian. Christ had not yet come, nor was he Jewish. He was a pagan Greek, but he's seen these things. He was an Athenian, he was from the city of Athens, and he fought in and suffered through this nightmare of a war. And he wrote the first actual Western history. It's what we consider the first book of history in the Western corpus. In his examination of this 27-year nightmare, he concludes with a couple of thoughts about human conflict. That, number one, it's uncontrollable men enter into conflict thinking they can control it, and they quickly lose control of events. That's what happened in this very limited war between two city-states in Greece that expanded across the northern Mediterranean and destroyed countless lives and, and civilizations for almost three decades. So it's uncontrollable, and he says... It's inevitable. We can't get away from it. And that is, is it not, brethren, the very nature of sin? We're, we're sinners in a sin and full world, a fallen world. We can't get away from this condition. This is exactly what the Bible reveals to us as a result of our rebellion against God. So Thucydides is proving the principles we find in the Bible to be true. The things, the truths that God lays out for us. He is found. And we think about our lives, things we've experienced, things we've seen in the events while we've been alive, which also bear this out. This demonstrates, as I said, that the word of God is applicable to us today. So now we come to the conflict in this last part of Judges chapter 9. And in this account, we find important lessons for us as we live out this, this earth, our earthly days in this, this world of conflict. <clears throat> and as we've gone through Judges, we've seen how Yahweh raises up the Judges, these men to be deliverers of Israel, to deliver them from external conflict, from foreign enemies. What is being revealed, I think, that we see more clearly in this last part of this chapter is that physical conflict is a manifestation of spiritual conflict. Spiritual conflict occurs, and physical conflict kind of comes out of it, if you will. Because this conflict that Israel experiences from these these enemies, these external enemies, is brought upon Israel in judgment for their own spiritual conflict with the one true God. These things are happening as they sin, as they fall away from God, as they apostatize, and form subsequent alliances with the pagan gods, the Baals and the Asherah. We've been dealing with the judge Gideon, also known as Yerubal, and currently... We've been dealing with his son, Avimelech, who seized power. The conflict that we are going to see is very clearly now from internal threats. There are no foreign enemies bringing this. And one thing I would like to point out, lest it be missed amongst all these accounts we're reading in Judges that deal with apostasy, betrayal, and murder... Which can you know? I can understand. It It can be like, "This is kind of this is kind of getting me down." You know, need some good news. Well, we're we're always going to talk about the good news—the good news we have in Christ. But the thing that that's not seen right here, and I want you to keep in mind as we as we go through these accounts, is that God always keeps, protects, and maintains a a faithful remnant amongst His people. So when we see the horrible sin that Israel falls into, bear in mind there is a faithful remnant. They may not be in sight in the account we're reading. God may not reveal that because it's not um, germane and exactly pertinent to the message he wants us to receive. But they're always there. How do we know that? Because the rebellious always face God's four disastrous Acts of judgment, which Ezekiel and the other prophets reveal are the sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. Things people experience today. Although I think many of the wild beasts are walking about on two legs. But besides all these things, Israel remains. Israel continues. And it is through the faithful remnant, that's not in view here, that, 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 but is still there, that good news comes. The Messiah comes through the faithful remnant. And through the faithful remnant, our Lord brings forth his church, us today. We, inherit, we are inheritors of this hidden faithful remnant. So don't let all this bad stuff in Judges get you down is every Christian throughout the church age gives witness to, by their very life, by their very existence, God will provide for us and those after us, the faithful remnant, to the point in time when Christ returns. And then the remnant, the faithful remnant, will not be a remnant any longer. The remnant will be the whole now, let us turn to the fall of Abimelech. So, open your Bibles, to, if you haven't already, to Judges chapter 9. And we're going to start off with just two verses, 22 through 24. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Yerubal might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Now, Abimelech's reign is described very briefly here, but it's, but it's described in a telling fashion. We get a lot out of this short description. So, as you may recall, if not, just a refresher, Abimelech is the, of the tribe of Manasseh. He was put into power by the lords, or the Balim, of Shechem, a city in the land of the tribe of Ephraim. So we have two northern tribes that have kind of seized power. And this guy's in charge. We're told he's reigning over Israel as a whole. We have no idea whether the tribes outside of these two northern tribes... Agreed to this or not, but there is an answer I think that is hinted at in the term used here for ruled he ruled over Israel, ruled in Hebrew yassar. Um, in, in this form occurs only here in, in judges, but there are um, but his root word is used. We find in nine different places, nine different times. And each time the root word is used, it's always in situations of confrontation and violence. It's not to rule in this this Hebrew sense, this one word, is not like a a, a beneficent king ruling. It's like a tyrant who sees control. And we see this previously in the book of Judges with Sisera, chapter 4. Issachar's captains in chapter 5, and the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb in chapter 7 and 8. So, we should probably, I think, understand the terminology of Avimelech's rule in military terms. He had been made a king, we're told, by the lords of Shechem, but he ruled more like a warlord. And a warlord rules by violence and power and threats of violence, and probably, I think, very likely, he brought the rest of Israel to heal, if you will, by threatened acts of, of violence, or perhaps even actual violence. And then we see something that's different than the normal pattern in Judges. And any we see something different in God's word, it's drawing our attention. The length of, of Avimelech's rule is revealed right away. And this is unusual. Normally, the length of the rule of one of the judges is not told until the very end of his account when his death is announced. But we're told right away that Avimelech only rules three years. And the shortness of this reign, I think, suggests also that he never produced the kind of stability needed for peace. And it hints at a violent End. So, in verse 23, the beginning part of it, we have a very interesting statement here. We're told, God sent an evil spirit between Avimelech and the leaders of Shechem. So God personally intervenes. To avenge the injustice done by Abimelech and the lords of Shechem when they seized power through the murder of Abimelech's half brothers So 70 men. Although you might say, well, 69 because Yatham escaped. But in ancient Jewish thought, the, you know, when your life is, in, when your family's taken from you, you're basically got to flee for your life and you're banished from everything you know. It's, it is as if your life has been taken from you. So that's why the scripture can very truthfully say that he killed his 70 half brothers including one who happened to still draw breath but is living someplace out in the desert at some oasis hiding. And the way Yahweh avenges this horrible wrong is through the actions of a what unfortunately is called an evil spirit or um, Ruach Ra'al. And in many of our English versions, it's translated evil spirit, which does damage, if we misunderstand it, which is very easy to do, uh, it does damage to the idea of God's character and, and, and his actions. And at least one commentary that I, uh, I'm familiar with describes this spirit as a demonic spirit. If you think about that. It's like this doesn't. It's not coherent. It doesn't line up, does it? We think about what Jesus says when the Pharisees accuse him of acting in concert with demonic spirits, and the, the Gospel of Mark tells us in chapter three, verses twenty-three through twenty-six. Jesus replies, and this is after he 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 rescues a demonic from from uh, a spirit a demon spirit inside of him. Jesus says, how can, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. So let's kind of unpack this a bit. Rock, uh, translated here as spirit, also means Wind so we got rock spirit wind and all of these connotations refer to something unseen by human eyes which has the power to affect and move things in our material world and this hebrew word raah translated evil in my english standard version in some translations it's translated ill Or it could be, in other places, translated as bad. There's basically two meanings that can come from this word. So we need to understand this so we can see that it's not, not, um, the word's not translated wrong. I just think it's not a real good translation choice, and it kind of can lead us the wrong way. So it can mean, like I said, one of two things. The first one is a moral evil, evil or bad, morally Like one who commits crimes may be called the bad guy. And the second uh, use of it would be unpropitious or adverse conditions. Like a violent storm may be called a bad storm. But a bad storm is not acting improperly in a moral sense, is it? No, it's bringing adverse conditions. So two things to bear in mind when we speak about The spirit here. First, in context like this, the word is not to be interpreted in a moral sense, as if the spirit, the rock sent by God, is morally defective. It's not evil in the sense that it's demonic. No. Uh, But it's in the sense of it's bringing adverse conditions as opposed to beneficial conditions. And there's four contexts in which this exact term, evil spirit, is used in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, And each time it refers to a spirit sent by God to produce negative and destructive effects upon the person or persons to which God sends the spirit. That is, the spirit brings about adverse effects. Now, if you find this interesting, you need to come to Wednesday night Bible study. We're talking a lot about this stuff. Let's move on. The second part of verse 23 and verse 24 tells us, And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Avimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubal might come, and their blood be laid on Avimelech, their brother who killed him, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So the mission of this spirit, this rock, is to bring justice through God's judgment on both Avimelech and the lords of Shechem for the mass murder they conspired on and carried out. So this spirit entices the Shechemites to deal treacherously with Avimelech. And this is not the only such instance of Yahweh assigning a spirit to bring adverse effects upon wicked men. We see it later on in Israel's history. We read about it in 1 Kings chapter 22. And I'm going to read verses 20 through 22. And you, can, you see how these compare. And the Lord said, this is a divine counsel scene. Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit, a rock, came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. So this passage reveals to us, the circumstances surrounding the mission tasking by God of spiritual be- beings that are aligned with Him, and in First Kings we got the prophet Mikahu is given a vision of Yahweh's throne room. This is this is what happens. This is one of the marks of a prophet when prophet the, when the Lord allows the prophet to see heavenly visions. The prophet gets to see what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak. And he sees a meeting of the divine council. This is where God is gathering his heavenly host around him. And there's interaction that's going on. And it only makes sense, think about what we read, if this term spirit refers to a created being it rules out, I would say, what we read here, reference to a psychological condition, like God sending a state of mind to these people. Because states of mind, psychological conditions, do not have back-and-forth discussions, as is revealed to us. One said one thing, then another said another. So would anxiety and um, envy have a discussion in the throne room of God? No, that makes absolutely no sense. That's ridiculous. And if God were to send a state of mind to a human being, would you expect God to ask the state of mind questions as to what it proposed to do? Hey, untruthfulness. What do you propose to do, you know? Um, untruthfulness being a sin, but a state of mind perhaps also. So, but if we, if, these, if we make such arguments or we fall for such arguments, it really presents scripture as nonsensical and erroneous, and we must take care in doing this. All of this brings me to my first point. God often brings judgment against the wicked through the actions of the wicked, through other wicked people. God often brings judgment against the wicked through the actions of other wicked people. We see this in the Bible. If we think about it, yes, it makes sense, doesn't it? Assyria, an evil, evil kingdom, used to bring God's judgment against the northern kingdom, Israel, during the time of the divided kingdoms. Babylon, used to bring God's judgment on the southern kingdom, Judah. Babylon, an evil pagan kingdom. And the actions of evil and wicked rulers, bramble men, if you recall Yatam's fable about the the bramble, bramble men affect everyone that they rule. Moving on to verses 25 through 33 in, in the book of Judges chapter 9. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him On the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. It was told to Avimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Avimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Avimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Yerubal? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that these people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gal the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as you see the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do." Recall from last week in Judges chapter 9, verses 16 through 21, Yatham, speaking to the rulers and to Abimelech at the coronation celebration, announced boldly that if they had done right in murdering his brothers, then they could rejoice in their new ruler. Obviously, they didn't do right. They murdered a big group of men. But if they didn't do right, he warns them prophetically, the men of Shechem and Avimelech would become embroiled in civil war and destroy each other. And this is exactly what happened. Three years later, God sends a spirit to sow discord between Avimelech and the leaders of Shechem. The Shechemites conspired to commit highway robbery on the nearby trade routes, which deprives Avimelech of tax revenue. And damages his reputation as a king. This is something we might lose sight of today in our current state. Because a ruler's primary duty primary duty, is to ensure the safety of those within his kingdom. From brigands, from criminals, from bad guys. As well as protecting them from foreign enemies. And on top of that, Gaal, the son of Abed, uses the harvest festival, a joyous time... As the occasion to call for a, a rebellion against their ruler, Abimelech. When he says, who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Not a rhetorical question. He's instigating something here. Then there's this guy, Zebul. He's Abimelech's puppet governor of Shechem, And he secretly notifies Abimelech, the conspirator, that there is now a conspiracy against him and advises him to march against them as soon as the sun rises You've gotta, you got to you got to strike quick is what he's telling him so verses 34 through 41 we read so Avimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by the night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Avimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, you, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming down from the direction of the diviner's Oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Avimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shekam and fought with Avimelech. And Avimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives, so that they could not dwell at Shekham. Now what we see here, up to verse 41, when the instigator Gaal goes to the city gate at sunrise, he thinks he sees people moving down the hillside, the mountaintop. He sees the assault force. But Zebul, Avimelech's lackey, tells him he's seeing things. It's just shadows. So Zebul is buying time for Abimelech to get his forces closer. And then when Gaal finally realized it's actually people, and there's a second assault coming from a different direction, at that point, Zebul tells him, put your money where your mouth is. You said you would take down these guys. There they are. Go and get them. And which Gaal does that. He and his band counterattack Avimelech's force, and they suffer many casualties, and they're quickly chased back into the city. Abimelech then departs. He doesn't need to stay at the city. He's, expect, he's inflicted devastating losses on these men who threatened his rule. And he has his own man, Zebul, inside running things. And Zebul runs Gaal and all of his clan out of town. So Avimelech returns to a nearby city where apparently he's located his royal court. This tells us something about This end of the three-year reign, that, that Avimelech no longer is in Shechem. There's a tension there that we can see in the text, besides the fact that rebellion has fomented in this city against the man they once championed for rulership. Verses 42 through 45 tell us, on the following day, the people went out into the field, and Avimelech was told... So again, his intelligence is working pretty good. Someone's uh, dropping dimes and telling them what's going on in Shekham. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Avimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Avimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. So life really went back to normal in Shikam. The troublemakers, Gaal and his clan, had been banished. So the people go about their normal life, right? They get up in the morning and they go out the gates to their fields. They're like The trees in Yatam's fable that have productive things to do. Maybe they're tending a vineyard. Maybe it's fig trees. Maybe it's olive trees, just like in Yatam's fable. They don't have time nor the inclination to be rulers as the bramble does. Abimelech is told that they're going out. This would not be unexpected. It's harvest time. Remember, this is when the rebellion was fomented at harvest time. So one of his companies ambushes these farmers, these vineyard workers, whatever they are. And then he and the other two companies attack the city gate. And he captures the city and he slaughters the people and he burns the city to the ground and he sows the ground with salt. What's that all about? Well, this is an ancient way of warfare against your most detestable enemies. That is to wipe out a place from all existence and future existence. You sow the ground with salt so nothing can be grown there. No one will come back and rebuild. They cannot support themselves. This is an expression of the utmost Hate. What we're seeing here, what's going on is God frequently judges in this way of using evil men to judge evil men and evil nations to judge evil nations. That's not to say that all of these people that are slain by Avimelech are evil people. We know the rulers of their city are evil, but we see this in history, don't we? And I pray we don't see it in the near future in our history, although we are seeing it in Europe, where innocent people are losing their lives because of the evil rulers over them and the decisions and the actions they make, bringing judgment upon them and people suffer. But what we must realize, and what I want to point out here, when we when it comes to this evil, and it's and it's really apparent with these evil men, but this is mirrored also in the in the spiritual realm, which I want you to understand, is that there is no fellowship in evil. There's untold numbers in the ranks of the fallen angels and the demonic spirits. But do not think for a moment that there is unity amongst those ranks. There is unity only found in righteousness that God brings. That demonstrates very clearly, I think, just that concept of how overpowering God is as compared to an evildoer, whether it be a human or a spiritual being. Evil has no lasting cohesion. Even evil... People, evil spirits, may join together for a time period, but they do not care for one another. They fall apart. They turn upon one another. And in verses 46 through 49, the judgment that Yatham warned of prophetically starts to really hit home. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, heard of Abimelech busting through the city gates, killing everybody and setting the city on fire, these people were already hiding, but they hear it's gotten really bad. And so they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barret. And we're going to talk about that in a bit. What, the, what does that mean? What is it? Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalmon he and all the people who were with him and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood brambles the bramble man is gathering brambles and took it up and laid it on his shoulder and he said to the men who were with him what you have seen me do hurry and do as i have done so every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. So clearly what we see in the narrative here is that Abimelech did not kill all the people in the city. Killed probably all the common people. But apparently... There's two parts of the city. There's an upper part where the elite dwell, and there's a lower part where, you know, the workers and and whatnot dwell. There's a temple complex in the upper part of the city. And this temple is dedicated to El Barith, which means God of the Covenant. There's a connection here we saw back in... Uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 33, after Gideon dies, the Israelites start f- following. They make their God this, this entity called Baal Barit, or Lord of the Covenant. So, God of the Covenant, Lord of the Covenant, covenant undoubtedly a connection there. Both El, E-L. And Baal are names of Canaanite gods, pagan gods. And Berith, covenant, well, we talked about covenant at the 10 a.m. hour, didn't we? Covenant is associated with Yahweh. Yahweh is the only covenant-making God. These pagan entities don't make covenants. So what this is telling us, Israel is, uh, has an apostate religion with a syncretic mix of Jewish and pagan beliefs. They've taken the pagan stuff and tried to put it with the true religion revealed to them through the Old Covenant. And connected to this pagan temple complex is a fortress or a tower stronghold. Um, Earlier, if you remember, in chapter 9, we heard about the bit melo that Yotam talks about in his curse. The fire is going to come upon it and out of it. Well, this probably is, this word, uh, uh it occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament, and scholars have never quite figured out what it is. They think it's some sort of structure. Well, here in the context, I think it kind of, um, it kind of goes along with that, that it's this fortress thing. So the rulers of the rulers of Shechem, the elite of the elite, are in the temple complex, And they hear, Abimelech is coming for you. And they retreat into this stronghold. This brings me to my second point. False gods are no protection against the judgment of the one true God. It's ridiculous to think people seeking refuge from Yahweh in a pagan temple. When the Lord's judgment comes... There is nothing that would protect the wicked from that judgment that has not been made available through them by the one true God, which is salvation through Christ. That is the only rescue. That is the only protection for any of us sinners. And whether this false god is a wicked spiritual being or an imaginary talisman, you know... that that doesn't mean anything, just concocted in their imagination. Whatever it is, it's powerless before the Lord God. It has no power to create, and it has no power to save. Neither Satan, the fallen angels, nor demons are omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent. They want human beings to think this, But they are not. These are the attributes of the Lord Almighty alone. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They alone in all of the cosmos have these attributes. So here we see Avimelech, the bramble man, gathering brambles. And he lays the brambles against the stronghold and sets it ablaze. And he kills a thousand people, men and men. And women, the promise of the curse of the bramble in Yatam's fable has come to pass. The lords of Shechem were warned that, that, that if they had not acted in good faith, if they had not acted righteously, fire would come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon, which is a reference to these people who consider themselves. "...to tower above all others." They consider themselves the most magnificent and the greatest. And then, what does Avimelech do then? Verse 50 to 55, we read, "...then Avimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower, and Avimelech came to the tower." And fought against it and drew near to the tower, the door of the tower, to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Avimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Avimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Now we're not told where this place Thebes is, and we're not given a, a reason for Avimelech to attack it. It just seems to be he's in a killing frenzy. However, you know, reason does not factor into the equation when the Bramble has been made king. Bramble men are not reasonable people. Avimelech thinks that the tactics that worked at Shechem will work at Thebes. So he does the same thing. He drives the city leaders into a tower fortress. Gathers wood. And he bends down to light the wood to incinerate them. And his skull is cracked by a millstone. Thrown down from the roof by a woman. Shame of shames. For a warlord to be dealt a killing blow by a woman. And shades of Saul. He calls upon his armor bearer to finish him off. So no one will say this woman killed killed him. But you know what's funny is that that, that that ploy didn't work. Even though the armor bearer did kill him, unlike Saul's armor bearer. His armor bearer runs him through. But God's word preserves for us that this woman killed this power hungry man. The irony is heavy in this in this account, exactly as the double edged curse foretold in Yatam's fable. The violent death that Abimelech dealt to his co-conspirators is dealt back to him in in mirror circumstances. It's amazing. And in case we miss it, God's gracious and he he tells us at the very end of, of this account that God made all this happen. That God was instigating and executing his judgment on Abimelech and Shechem. God's judgment often works silently. If it was not for the prophecy of Yotam told in the fable, and the word of God revealing it, this would just be one of those things in history, right? Where these bad guys seize power and people suffer. But God's word tells us, no, it's... It's that, yes, it's that, but this is my judgment. We expect thunder from the mountaintop and the smell of fire and brimstone when God judges. But judgment often comes gradually so that only those who have eyes to see, see it. And it's hidden from the others. I am pretty certain that in their last desperate moments in Shechem, as Abimelech is getting ready to murder them all, that those that were in cahoots with him to murder the 70 men, my guess is that the prophecy Did not even come upon their minds. Yet we can see it. We are allowed to look back. And to see God working here. From the very initial conspiracy. To commit mass murder. To the attack on Thebes at the end. We we can see no reason. No logic. No justification. For the Bramble man's actions. Apart from sin. Malignant wickedness. That's the only thing. That really accounts for what's going on. But in this malignant wickedness, we see the story of sin in conflict. And our last point, point three, is we must use discernment when judging or involving ourselves in conflict. And bear in mind, there may not be any good guy in a conflict... We want good guys, we want to pick sides, that's just part of being human. You know, that's why sports are so popular, you can have a team. You know, my team's best, and my team's going to beat your team. In my career as a police officer, dealing with many gangs in gang in cities that, that you know, had a lot of street gangs. There was gang warfare. It was territorial. When the gangs were at war with one another, no one was in the right. It wasn't like, yeah, these guys are right this time because these guys shouldn't have done what they did. No. Us, police officers, we didn't pick sides. We didn't make judgment on, okay, well... This gang went into this other gang's territory, which historically has been that gang's territory, but that gang has moved in, and, you know, we're, there's, there's good arguments on both sides. No, it's just wicked. When wicked gang members were murdered, it's still a moral sin. It doesn't matter the fact that they were bad guys. We were not going to allow anyone to be murdered if we could help it. And we were going to arrest and charge those who committed the murder. Even though the guy that was killed wasn't you know, uh, an advantage to his neighborhood or his society. But as often the case, and as we see in large, larger scale events in the world... When the wicked go to war with each other, innocent people suffer. There are many innocent people, innocent in the human sense, not innocent in the theological sense. People that uh, I was on, had murder cases where people driving home from work in a couple instances um, got caught in a gang crossfire and were murdered. They, didn't, they didn't, live in, didn't even live in the gang neighborhood. So many instances of family members of gang members being killed because their house is shot up. A family gathering they're at is shot up. Little children. Grandparents. Often these gangs were, inter, were, were, were multi-generational You know, there there are people, when I was doing this, there were people that were decades older than me that were gang members. And their parents had been gang members. But there were a lot of people where their, their child was a gang member and they had no connection. And they wanted their child out of the gangs. And often they suffered because of that. And what would have happened if the police had supported the gang whose territory was invaded? That would have emboldened that gang that lost the territory, wouldn't it? That gang would say, oh yeah, the big dog's on our side. No one's stopping us now. We're going to take more and, and more. Violence would escalate rapidly and drastically. Now take that illustration from Pastor Ken's distant past and apply it to things going on in the world today. And I don't have to get political. So, thank you. I can get the point across about what conflict is all about, and how we as Christians should not be supporters of war. Yes, there's times when a fight has to be made. I fully understand that. And God bless the men and women who are willing to defend us but we pray for peace. We do not want to see children and civilians that just are trying to live their life in desperate circumstances. We do not want to see them harmed and neither does God. So Judges 9, in closing, warns us, destruction can come from within as well as from without. Yet it comforts us. The Lord will destroy the destroyers of his people. The rulers of this age have not learned. Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah points this out. They have not learned that whoever touches the flock of the Lord touches the apple of his eye. Zechariah is saying they're poking God right in the eye when they do this. And what happens when you poke someone in the eye? You get a response. These rulers who do this, they place themselves under God's sword or under the millstone of God, as Avimelech did. Remember, beloved, God does not abandon his people to any Avimelech, but keeps his people from utter destruction. While we may suffer in this life, we are promised, and no one can remove this from us, we are promised everlasting life with our Lord He has granted this to us, his beloved children. No one can remove that. They could kill us, but we live everlastingly in heaven, the reconciled earth, with our Lord. A much better place. Join me in prayer. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word, Father. We give thanks that... You've set these accounts before us that we may learn from them, Father, that we may see how you work in mighty fashion. Because sometimes we miss it, Father. We get caught up in the world, and we get caught up in our events. And sometimes this world and these events scare us. It's frightening. And we lose sight at times, that this is all of your decree, that this is all in your hands, that we are safe, no matter the physical mortal threat we may face at any time in our life, we are safe eternally through you. Father, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this wonderful gift you have given us, those who don't deserve it, that are sinners that have rebelled against you. But, Father, we give thanks that you've transformed our hearts. You've taken our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. Father, bless the rest of this day, Father. Bless and protect those who are going to travel out to Newhall for the Southern California Association of Reformed Baptist Churches quarterly gathering, Father. We pray for a blessing upon that gathering, for all the brethren there, for the... Um, for the speaker who's going to deliver God's word. Father, we just ask for blessings. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.